It is truly an honor and a privilege to be here with you today and to be standing up here in front of you. The topic is a heavy one, but an important one. When Rabbi Johnson asked me for a list of subjects that I'd be comfortable to speak on, somehow this, pro this topic made it onto the list. And I think it was just there because of personal reasons that I wanted to explore the topic. In addition to the fact that ever since October 7th and the tragedies, I can't remember a single day that passed by that at, what, at one point during the day, I didn't have to say the words Baruch Dayan Hamas. So we're putting God on trial, so to say. I kind of feel like I'm on trial. <laughs> but I just want to clarify firstly as follows. I'm not here to defend God. Hashem can do that himself. There have been many great sages and thinkers throughout history who have spoken on the topic, written on the topic. That's not what I'm here for. Secondly, it's an extremely sensitive subject. It's a personal topic. And due to that, I'd like to ask forgiveness from everybody before I start. If I say anything that may seem callous or dismissive, that is not my intention. And I would like to ask permission from God to be able to continue talking on this topic. Now, I encourage questions, I encourage curiosity, but for the sake of flow, if you can hold the questions until the end, I'll be more than happy to discuss anything and everything. Unless I say something which is truly objectionable, if I do, please stop me. All right. So the topic that I intend to address is not theodicy. You see, theodicy, the great question of why do bad things happen to good people, is about defending God and God's position. But I'm not here for that. However, in order to appreciate the topic of putting God on trial and to even discuss it and to begin to discuss it, we do have to have a basic understanding of the concept of theodicy and the general approaches that are offered in the defense. So I'm not defending, but I'm going to offer some ideas. Now the nature of this topic has more questions than answers, or as the way that the Kleisenberger Rebbe of blessed memory, who survived the Holocaust, losing his wife and 11 children, and lost so much more. When he was asked if he has any questions for God, he responded by saying, I have many questions and powerful ones at that. But if I ask the questions, God himself will invite me to heaven to answer them. And I'd rather be here with questions than up there with answers. Okay, so in light of this, again, I'm not going to answer the question of theodicy, but I'm just going to give you some of the offerings that are out there in the Jewish works and the studies. There's a quote from the Bardichever, where the Bardichever was once talking to a real heretic, somebody who completely denied God. And the Bardichever opened up discussions with him as to why he doesn't believe. And after making his case, the Bardichever looked at him and said, I want you to know something. The God that you lost faith in, the God that you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. And it's important to realize that when it comes to, you know, how educated are we and how much do we know about God? Many of us, we were taught in pre-1A, in preschool, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere, and it never really advanced beyond that. And even in cases where it did advance beyond that, it never became real. And it's important to let those ideas go. So let's just start with the famous 
question of theodicy, and that is why do bad things happen to good people? The problem with this question, or the idea behind this question, is that there's a lot of presumptions here. And you have to be careful when asking questions that it's not too presumptuous, and that is, when we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people, we're assuming that what is happening is bad. Now, there's a general misconception that pain and tragedy are bad. Now, what do I mean? Of course, we don't like pain, we don't like tragedy, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. Let me just make the case. Not only do us human beings tolerate pain, sometimes we're even willing to pay for the pain. Has anybody here ever paid their dentist to drill into their mouth? You like pain. You're willing to pay for that pain by the mere fact that you're paying your dentist to do that. So it might be painful and it might be uncomfortable, but it's not necessarily bad. So the first question of why do bad things happen to people is assuming that what is happening is bad and not just painful and tragic. Now, pain is pain, it's real, and the tragic is real. It's like they say that when you work and you get paid, it's called a job. When you do the work and somebody else gets paid, it's called slavery. But when you pay and you do the hard work, it's called insanity, or some call it the gym. You see, as human beings, we are willing to tolerate pain and suffering as long as it's meaningful or purposeful. Think about exercise. Think about a living a healthy lifestyle. It comes with sacrifices, discomfort, sometimes pain. But we do it because it's meaningful and purposeful to us. And in that case, so something that is bad is something which is completely meaningless, purposeless, and just random. That type of pain and suffering is bad. That type of pain and suffering we're not willing to tolerate. But let's take this a step deeper. The question itself of why do bad things happen to good people is built on three fundamental principles. And that is, number one, you believe in God, and what kind of God? An omnipotent God, a God that is capable of anything. Number two, an omnibenevolent <coughs> omni, um, uh, omni God, a God that is purely and solely good. And number three, that a God that cares and is willing to intervene. Because if you lack any of these three fundamental beliefs, the question doesn't even start. You see, they say that the difficulty of a believer is needing to explain God. But the difficulty of an atheist is to explain literally everything else. You see, if there is no God, or if God is not all-powerful, or if God is not solely good and kind, and God is not willing to intervene, then who are you asking the question to, and what is the question based on? If everything is random and chaotic, then the question of why do Bad things happen to good people, it's very simple. Because that's how the wheel spins. That's how the world works. So what's your question in the first place? Who are you asking it to? Who do you expect to step in instead of you? <clears throat> See, in yeshiva, there are certain, I guess, philosophical or theological conversations that we loved having. They were like an exercise and to a certain extent, even entertainment, such as these questions of theodicy. And we'd sit around exploring them and loving to throw around the ideas and philosophizing about it. But once you hit the real world, and especially as a rabbi, it's the last question you want to hear from somebody. Not because there are no concepts or answers that you can share and perspectives, but because you have to realize when it comes to asking a question, there are two types of questions. There's a philosophical question, a question that is curious and looking for a philosophical answer, and then there's an emotional question, a question asked out of pain and suffering, a question that is not looking for a philosophical answer, 
but for a shoulder to cry and somebody to feel their pain. Now, never make the mistake of answering somebody's question. You must always answer the one who's asking the question. Just think about it like this. The next time uh, you see you know, a spouse, somebody close to you, and you see that they're really angry about something, very simple, just tell them two words. You're overreacting, and it'll solve it, right? No, that's not what they're looking for, right? Or you tell them, calm down. Greatest two words to end the conversation. But the idea there is, we have to address two components of this question, when in the real world, in the question of why do bad things happen to good people, it's not a question of a philosophical nature, 99% of the time. It's an emotional question. It's a question of pain, true pain and suffering. And therefore our role as individuals, as a rabbi, as anybody in your community, is to be there for them, to feel their pain and help them walk through it. On October 9th, I got a call from one of the Israelis in our community. I remember I was sitting in my backyard. The weather was still nice in Mequon, Wisconsin. And everybody was in some kind of turmoil then. And it was one of the Israelis in our community where if you ask him how does he identify, he'd tell you he's a secular, a chiloni. But it tells you he's anything but that. Anyways, I answered the phone. I said, no, Manishma, what's going on? He tells me, yeah, I got to tell you. Every day he puts on tefillin. And he makes an effort to make sure to do it. Whether it's before work or after work, he makes sure to put on tefillin every single day. And he tells me, to be honest, and this morning I was davening. And I came to the words in Berchus Kriyashma where we say, Avinu of Harachman Rachim Aleinu, our Father in Heaven, have mercy upon us. And he says, I, literally, I could not say another word. He took off his tefillin and went to work. I didn't tell him, you know, you should go back and finish davening. I didn't tell him, oh, let's talk about this. Is that really a question? I told him, you come over. We're going to have a coffee right now in my backyard. And we'll cry together. And we did. He spoke his heart. And that was what he needed in that moment. So back to theodicy. There's a few approaches out there. I'm going to start off with two approaches, approaches which are given, even in the Jewish world, but off the bat are completely incorrect. Approach number one is the concept that God and the great good God is only capable of control in areas that are not painful or tragic. In areas of evil, pain, or tragedy, God is not present. It's out of God's control. And therefore, when, God forbid, somebody experiences tragedy, say, it's not God. God can't do that. I'll try to speak into that better. Ah, good. All right. So, this approach, that it's beyond God's realm, it's beyond God's control. Besides, for, firstly, that it's completely heretical, and we say this every day in davening, which is the real verse. The, the way we say it in Shema is a little bit changed. But that whole idea that God is only in control of one area but not in other areas is completely heretical. It goes against everything in Judaism. But even forget about it from a religious perspective, just from a philosophical point of view, to pick and choose where God is controlling and God is not is completely foolish. Because if God is not in full control of everything, then who is? And when you answer that question, that is what God is. So as long as you have something, this idea that is only in control of something and not something else, that is not God. It's silly to call that God. It's trying to hold on to a God that doesn't exist for whatever reason that it might make the person feel comfortable. But where it really fails is it's basically 
telling a person, God is just a celestial butler to make you feel good. And that is not what God is. So if that's the only response, you have to let go of the response or let go of God. I say let go of both. A second general answer given is something called Hesterpanin, which means the face is hidden. And that comes from an idea in Parshas Bechukaisa where Hashem talks to the Jewish people and he says, When you will walk with me, when we will go in the, with God in happenstance way. And there's in a way where we go about the world as if God is not here, as if God does not exist and things are random and by chance. God says, I will return to you in the same way and I'll act the same way with you. And with this, the Jewish philosophers throughout, the, throughout history have given a certain notion that when bad things and tragic things happen, it's because of the Hester Panim, which is true. But at the same time, to say that God is not in 100% control doesn't work. We know the basic idea and the fundamental to Judaism of Hashgacha Pratis, divine providence, and how every single detail, absolutely every detail of life, down to the most minute, mundane detail, is 100% orchestrated by God. God is intimately involved in our lives in every way, shape, and form. And if that's the case, even when there's a Hester Panim, a concealment of the face, think about it by definition, it means there's a concealment from us, but not that God isn't running the show. And if that's the case, how does that justify? How does that answer? So some other general ideas that are found are that the reason why bad things happen to good people is number one, divine punishment. Number two, afflictions of love. Number three, a test of faith. Four, refinement of the individual. And five, reincarnation. It didn't start right now. This is from a different lifetime. And those are the many approaches and well-meaning approaches that you will hear on the topic. And there's a certain value to each one. However, each one poses its own highly problematic issue, and that is, you want to talk about punishment, divine retribution? When God punishes, so to say, it's not like a teacher or a parent or some kind of authoritarian figure who loses control and says, I'm going to leash out, I'm going to leash out all my wrath and anger towards you. That's not called punishment. Real punishment is discipline. Discipline comes from the term disciple, which means to teach a lesson. If somebody thinks that God punishes by destroying, that just turns God into a monster. God does not lose control and destroy. The whole idea in Torah of punishment is not as punishment, but as in discipline, to teach us, to show us the right way. And if that's the case, if all we're left with is complete destruction after something that happens, what lesson was taught? What discipline was there? Nothing. See, they tell, they tell you that when it comes to disciplining children, to give punishments that have nothing to do with the lesson you're trying to teach the child are a complete waste of time. Because you haven't taught the child anything. You may have controlled them in the moment, but you've lost complete value of education. I'd like to believe in a God that has a little bit more control than I do. Now, you might ask, but what about the prophets? Don't the prophets talk about destruction? And the answer is maybe. But that is only when they're talking in the name of God. For somebody to come along and philosophically come up with an idea that this is punishment or divine retribution, they either are a liar or a prophet. And I'll let you make the conclusion. A test. A test of faith. You see, there's something that our teachers got a little bit wrong when it comes to tests as well. There are certain teachers, when they give a test to their class, they're looking to fail the child. They're looking to show the child that they don't know. 
But the real purpose of a test, as the Torah tells us, is for success, to show us what we do know and what we are capable of. As we know that God only tests a person according to their capability. God only gives a person a test to lift them up and not push them down. And if that's the case, when there's destruction in such a way, where there's nothing left, so what test was there? What was the result? Or what were the results? Nothing. And if that's the case, where's the explanation? When it comes to refinement, refinement is when a person goes through something and comes out a better person, more refined in character, more sensitive to others' feelings, more sensitive to what others go through. And that's all fine and beautiful. But if they're not around to share that refinement with the world, what was the point of the refinement? What value was there? Afflictions of love are when the person can experience and feel that love. Destruction doesn't allow for that opportunity. So ultimately, if the recipients are not here to feel it, if the baby could never have sinned, if the one suffering is crushed by their pain and what they're going through, how can any of these hold true? What lessons were taught? What value was given? What then is the meaning of this all? Now these questions don't invalidate the value of each idea here, but what they tell us is that there's something fundamental which is lacking, that we need to complete the puzzle. Now you see, the questions that we've been asking today, and the questions that we've been asking for who knows how long, are nothing new. These questions have been around as long as the world has. As long as human suffering has been a reality, these questions have been there. As the Rebbe once pointed out to somebody, if you're asking the question today, I wonder what is it that happened? This question was true a thousand years ago, this question was true two thousand years ago. The question didn't just start today. It's a real question, it must be asked and it must be addressed. But recognize that if we're looking for truth and justice, when and how to ask it. One of the most beautiful and eloquent ways that this question is actually addressed and asked is in the book of Eve. I don't know how many people have read through it properly, how many people have learned through it. Remember when I was in yeshiva in LA, if we came late or if we misbehaved, one of the punishments were to write out a chapter of Eve in English. I guess you get to go through all the suffering that Eve was talking about, right? But in short, as e the book of Eve, the Gemara has about seven different opinions as to when exactly, what time period did Eve actually live? But there's an eighth opinion that says that e the entire book of Eve is actually a metaphor. It's a metaphor of human suffering and the human experience that will be around to the end of time, so that until Mashiach will come and remove all suffering and pain from the world. Until then, the condition will exist in one form or another. Each person will experience it in one form or another. And that's why it's not even contradictory. He could have lived 3,000 years ago, and nevertheless, the book still remains true in its metaphor. What's the story? Eve, as God himself testifies, was a righteous, good individual. He was living the good life. He had everything. He had a loving wife. He had great children. He had health. He had a very successful business. He had it all. Until one day, Satan, the Satan, comes along and starts to challenge Eve. Takes away his business. God robs him of his children. And his health deteriorates. He has nothing left. In complete despair, covered in boils, in pain and in agony, his wife says to him, curse God and die. 
To he, which he replies, absolutely not. He sits and he ponders and he questions God. All of a sudden, four of his friends come to give him comfort. They heard about his catastrophe and his tragedy that he experienced. They try giving him comfort. But as you can see, they're great friends because as they give him comfort, they start telling him, this is not God's fault, this is your fault. Sin, iniquity, shortcomings, you might not be such a great person after all. And they start justifying what Hashem has done. To which Eve completely refuses to accept any form of justification for what God has done. Challenge them, challenging them on each and every one, and this goes on for 36 chapters. Imagine what his life was like if these were his friends who were his enemies. <laughs> Until ultimately, he rejects everything they say. The Satan returns to God and says, I can't break this man. He's unbreakable. And God shows up to Eov. And God says, first of all, I want to reward you for not cursing me. I want to reward you for standing by me. And God gives him everything back. But then God continues. And God doesn't answer a single one of his, his questions. You see, the entire time, Eve is challenging God. He says, how can God do this if I'm a good person? And Eve really was a good person. But God just responds like a good Jew does. Not that God is Jewish. I'm going to say right now, don't tell anybody, but God is not Jewish. But God responds with questions. And God says to him, where were you when I created heaven and earth? Where were you when I laid the foundations? And then God gets very scientific. God starts talking about the birth of animals and how animals feed and how the celestial bodies work. And he's asking Eve, he says, where were you? Do you know the answer to any of these questions? To which obviously Eve doesn't. And not just because he wasn't a scientist, because to many of these questions there are no answers to. We don't know. We are mortals. We are, create, we are creations, not the creator. So first of all, Eve's refusal to accept his friend's justification is actually what saves God from looking like a monster. You see, to say that God would bring about such destruction because of an iniquity or a sin would turn God into a monster. Or as they say, the God of the Bible is always angry, bringing wrath. It's a horrible way to depict a God. And who wants to believe in such a God? Definitely not I. But God is giving him a deeper message. And that is, the answer to your question is that there is no answer. See, as human beings, we love to fit things into little boxes, all nice and wrapped up, squared up. We love for things to make sense because then we feel like we're in control. We feel like, I get it, I know what's gonna happen, I can even somewhat predict the future because I'm in control, I know everything. But the reality is, and life shows us time and time again that we are not. Life is so much more than that, beyond anything that we can fathom. And that's what the creator of heaven and earth says to Eve. You're right. You can question me, you can challenge me, but there is no answer because you're mortal, you're a, cre you're a creation, not the creator. And that's fine. It's reminiscent of a medrash, actually two medrashim. And the medrash goes as follows. Moshe Rabbeinu is given a vision of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva is being sadistically murdered by the Romans, peeling off his flesh, weighing it on a scale like the meat of an animal. And Moshe Rabbeinu screams out to God, Zu Is this your Torah and is this its reward? Rabbi Akiva who gave up his life to learn Torah? It's reminiscent of what we say in the Yom Kippur davening, where the angels, by the ten martyrs, the angels scream out to God. Is this your Torah? Is this your reward? To which God responds, silence, 
or I'll turn the world back into nothing. Now I ask you, what kind of response is that? It's like, you, do your children ever ask you a question that you don't have the answer to? After they've pushed every single one of your buttons, it's easy to say, be quiet, I'm the parent, get out of here. And that's if you're in control and you're not in a bad mood. If you're in a bad mood, it's come back or all, you know? What kind of answer is that from God? Silence or I'll turn the world back into nothing? Does God have an anger issue? Did Moshe Rabbeinu push the wrong button? What happened here? Someone's heard a beautiful parable which brings out the idea. And that is that all, all the stories go, there was once a king, and the king wanted a brand new suit. So he found the Jewish tailor. The Jewish tailor was, comes in high demand, tells the tailor, I want a beautiful suit with the highest quality materials. Jew says, no problem, and take your measurements. Based on your measurements, this is the amount of material that I'll need. Gives it to the king, the king goes ahead and buys it, delivers it to the tailor, the tailor makes the most exquisite suit you've ever seen. Comes the day of the fitting, they put it on, it fits like a glove. The king is ecstatic, couldn't be happier. The king comes back to the palace with his suit, he's happy, he's showing it off. And of course, as all good stories go, there's one bishop who's an anti-Semite. And the bishop comes to the king and says, I know you're so happy, but I want to tell you, the Jew is cheating you, and he's a thief. He says, what do you mean? Because everybody knows that when you get something tailor-made, there's always excess material. Did he return the excess material? He says, no. He says, didn't you not buy the finest materials? Maybe he cheated you. The king says, wait a second, that's treason. Off with his head. So they call the Jew in. And the Jew says, I swear, there is no excess material. The king says, that's impossible. Throw him in prison. I don't want to hear from him. In one week's time, we'll put him to death. Come to the day, time for the hanging or the beheading. And the Jew says, I want to make one last wish. And that is that you bring me the suit and a razor. Interesting request, but we'll honor it. They bring the suit and the razor to the tailor in front of the king. The tailor walks over to the suit, using the razor, opens up every seam on the suit, showing the king how he didn't waste a single fabric, a single thread of fabric, folding the excess material into the suit itself so that it wouldn't go to waste, because whoever uses those splotches of material, they sit in your drawer until you throw them out. So he folded them perfectly into the suit. But now at this point, there is no suit left. This is what God tells the angels. This is what God tells Moshe Rabbeinu. He says, you see, you want to understand the inner workings of the world? As the world stands and exists, you will never be able to understand it. It is unfathomable. You are a creation after all. There are things about this world that don't fit into the realm of rhyme and reason. You see, rhyme and reason are a creation themselves. As human beings, we're a little bit arrogant thinking that everybody, everything has to fit into that box, but that's arrogant, and that's okay. But God says that doesn't work in the world. The only way you'll ever be able to see that is when there is no world and there is no reality, you'll be able to get it. And that's your choice. Ultimately, we're left with a world, not an explanation. And that's what Hashem was telling Moshe Rabbeinu and the angels. And that is what Hashem tells Eov. To live with faith doesn't mean I have the answer to every question. If I have the answer, I don't need faith. Many people make this foolish mistake sometimes that instead of using their brains, they use faith. Faith and, belief, faith and understanding are two separate worlds. Faith complements understanding, understanding complements faith. If we use one instead of the other, we make grave mistakes. We are meant to use our mind, meant to use our logic, 
And once we've reached the pinnacle, the height of logic, that's when faith kicks in. Or we allow our faith to dictate. But to use one instead of the other is a crime. We were given these tools for a reason. We are meant to understand things, and our faith carries us when we don't have the answer to the questions. We're allowed to have a question. We're sometimes even supposed to have that question. But nevertheless, we live a righteous life knowing that God runs the world, and some things are beyond my understanding. We're going to read about in the Parsha Hamash Rabbeinu next week. Hamash Rabbeinu sees the burning bush. The Jewish people are suffering in Egypt at this point, babies being murdered for the sake of Pari's bloodbaths, literally. And at the burning bush, Hashem starts talking to Moshe, tells him, take off your shoes, don't come close, because it's a holy place. The Medrash tells us what Moshe Rabbeinu was witnessing at that point and what the burning bush represented was the suffering of the Jewish people throughout history and how as a nation we will, be through, we will go through everything. We will go through water and fire, but it, it will burn, but it will not consume us. It's at that point that Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, I want to show you my ways. I want to explain to you why the Jewish people will suffer and why it will be so hard. The Gemara tells us Moshe Rabbeinu turns away and says, absolutely not. And Hashem rewards him for that. But what exactly is happening over here? Moshe Rabbeinu was just given the key to see the insights of everything, and he rejects it? The simple reason why he rejects it is the simple reason why we can't justify pain and suffering. And that is, if Moshe Rabbeinu could understand why the Jewish people would go through so much pain and suffering, and the horrors that we would go through, it wouldn't bother him as much. He would understand as to why it's happening. It's almost like when a parent knows, God forbid, if a parent has a child who needs to go through a surgery, life-saving surgery, it's painful, it's tragic. But because the parent knows it's in the child's best interest, it does alleviate a little bit of the pain and suffering. Moshe Rabbeinu knew that as a leader of the Jewish people, he wanted to feel their pain entirely. Because if he couldn't feel our pain, he couldn't be our leader. And that's one of the reasons why we don't know the answer to this question. Elie Wiesel, survivor of Auschwitz. He was once lecturing in Boston University where he used to teach. And the question would come up all the time of, why did the Holocaust happen? And he gave many different answers throughout the years. One year he decided he was going to be a little bit different. The question came up in class, and he says, I know, but I won't tell you. To which the students responded, how dare you? And they continued to push him. Why? Tell us why. And he turns to them and says, the reason why I can't tell you is because the moment I do, what differentiates you and the Nazis if you can justify what happened? In our world, we are not meant to justify pain and suffering. We are not meant to accept that pain and that suffering. Because the moment that we can, we will justify it and we will be okay with it. Our job here is to challenge the pain and suffering of the world and to make the world a better place, to stop and alleviate the pain and suffering. As we have seen in the most amazing way throughout history, time and time again, how the Jewish people have stood up to alleviate our own pain and suffering and the pain and suffering of those around us. Look at the aftermath of October 7th, how amazingly the Jewish community, both in Eretz Yisrael and around the world, came together 
to support each other, to alleviate each other's discomfort, pain, and suffering, and to try to build a better, more, more moral and godly world. Now, based on this, can we still challenge God? Can we put God on trial? After all, that is the subject, right? Seemingly, based on everything we said until now, to put God on trial would be heretical, it would be offensive, and it would be silly. So maybe we should just drop it at that and say, no, you cannot challenge God, and we cannot put God on trial. Back to Elie Wiesel, survivor of Auschwitz, survivor of literally hell on earth. He wrote a play called God on Trial. The purpose of the play was all the questions he wanted to ask and challenge God with by putting God on trial from the Holocaust. But he didn't want to do it so obviously, so the play is set in the 17th century as a response to the pogroms. And as the play goes, there are different actors. There are those, the victims in the community who come in front of the judges to give over their testimony, to give over what they experienced and what they went through and to provide proof and evidence against their claims, for their claims against God. Now, where did Elie Wiesel come up with this idea? While he was in the concentration camps, one night, or it wasn't just one night, it was time spanned over several nights, they got together in the barracks, and three sages sat down as judges, and the different people in the camps came forward to share their experiences and their atrocities, the tragedies that they've been through, the horrors committed against them. They brought proof, and they challenged God. The conclusion of the case was chayov. Not guilty, but that God owes us something. And this is what inspired Ali Wiesel's play of God on trial. Now I ask you, is this allowed? Is this Jewish? Is this not the greatest insult to God, especially based on everything that we said until now? And the answer is absolutely not. And if you don't believe me, take a look at history. Some of the greatest prophets and sages did exactly that. Let's go through just a few examples. Now, before I say this, yeah, there were those in history who took it quietly and were rewarded for that. For example, Aaron Hakoyan, the great priest, after he suffers his tragedy, Vayidim Aaron, Aaron takes it in silence, and he's rewarded. Bruria, the great wife of Rabbi Meir, one Shabbos afternoon, her two sons pass away, and she takes it quietly and is rewarded for that. But there are also those throughout history who completely challenged God. Let's start with Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu is told that Sdaim and Amara will be destroyed. Cities that were completely morally bankrupt. And what does Avram Avinu challenge? How can the great judge of heaven and earth do this? Moshe Rabbeinu, when he witnesses the suffering of the Jewish people in Mitzrayim, what does he say to God? How can you do this to your people? We just saw the Medrash, how the angels and Moshe Rabbeinu challenged God during the Ten Martyrs. How can God do this to the Jewish people? Chana, the great mother of Shmuel, the prophet. When she prays and beseeches God so that she can have a child, the terms that she throws against God are extremely challenging. Throughout the Tehillim, time and time again, David Malach challenges Hashem. So I want to read for you a few verses from Kapitel Betes 89. It 
questionable whether David Melch is the actual author of this chapter or not, but several other chapters support this terminology in this language. Because you even turned your, or let's see, you have debased his dignity to the ground. You have broken all his fences. You turned his strongholds into ruins. You have elevated the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies happy. You even turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You brought an end to his splendor and have hurled his throne to the ground. You cut short the days of his youth. You covered him with shame, Selah, forever. How long, O oh God, will you continue to hide yourself and your fury will burn like fire? Where are, you, where are your former acts of kindness, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? In the second chapter of Habakkuk, one of the Treyasar, he tells God, I am not moving from this spot until you answer my claims against you. And the Medrash tells us that was actually one of the sources for Choyni HaMa'agal. Choyni, the circle maker in the times of the Gemara, tells us, there was famine in Eretz Yisrael, no rain. They prayed for rain, nothing would fall. And this was a serious famine. Till Choyni HaMa'agal circles, makes a circle around himself, and he tells God, I'm not moving until you bring rain. And the rain starts to drop little by little. And the people come and say, this is rain? So he turns to God, he says, God, where's the rain? This is fake. All of a sudden, it starts to pour heavy. So the people come back and say, this is too much. So he turns to God, and he says, God, what's the deal? What's the games over here? Put it back to normal. Rains come normal, and they get everything that they need. But to talk to God in such a way, to say that, God, where are you for your children? We don't want it like this. We want it like that. The challenges against God, well, where does he get it from? The prophets, the sages. Now, these are all biblical sages. The Chassam Seifer and the Chafetz Chaim were noted that at times they would go into isolation just to challenge God of the sufferings of their communities and the Jewish people. Rabbi Yitzchak Bardichev had a famous Kaddish that he would say on Yom Kippur, and his introduction to this Kaddish was to challenge God for all the pain and suffering that the Jewish people were going through. Most famously, the book of Echa itself was written in a way to say, God, we had enough of your fury, enough, enough of your wrath. We don't want this. This is not a fair judgment. It is not fair to the Jewish people to continue suffering like this. And as the Medrash tells us, and this was probably the first recorded God on trial, the Medrash on Echa tells us how the Avis, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov stand up in front of God and they challenge God. And each one of them approaches God with their claim as to why the Jews are suffering. Quoting the Torah, the fact that we had a covenant with God, the kindness of God. And as each one makes their case, as they walk away, as the Medrash tells us, they don't see, but God sheds a tear. But what are we to make of this? How can we challenge Hashem? How do we understand this concept? So, one answer given in the commentaries is that all of these scenarios of challenging God are the anomalies. Think about it. There's been hundreds of thousands, some millions of Jews that have been through suffering. How many of the prophets are actually recording for challenging Hashem? Several, but not all. And therefore, what all of these stories really show us and tell us, and there's two ways to understand this. And some are more comfortable or less comfortable with attributing human nature to prophets and, so to say, people in the Bible. But they were human after all. And that the reason why they were challenging God was out of the anger that they felt and the pain that they felt when tragedy struck. 
And what that's the cause of that, or the, really this, the reason why the Torah would tell us about that, is to give a Pischen Pate, let us off the hook for those in the future who will experience pain and suffering, that when we call out against God, we are justified because look, there are greater people who have done it before us, and that we might not be right, but we're definitely not wrong. It's to allow us to be human and to feel that pain and experience it as pain and not to have to wipe it under the rug and pretend like we're not in pain and we're not suffering. That's one approach. But essentially, it's not the ideal. A second approach, a bit esoteric, so I'm not going to elaborate on it, but as the Kabbalists like to put it, that all of these claims against God are actually an internal dialogue that God is having himself which opens up to our dialogue against God, but they're all an internal dialogue within what is known as the Midas. Okay. <laughs> Too much to explain in a few minutes. Anyways, we can talk about that another time. But there's a third perspective. And this third perspective is a phenomenal one, and that is each and every one of these claims against God, putting God on trial, was out of complete faith, not out of lack of faith. And like we said before, because it takes a believer it takes somebody who lives a life of faith to honestly ask this question and to honestly challenge God by saying, God, you are so good. The Torah teaches us such values and morals. Why does the world not look that way? God, how is it possible that I can't reconcile you with my reality? The Friedrich Rebbe once said, nobody struggles with faith. We are all believers, the children of believers. He said, well, one second, I know people who struggle with faith. Even at times I myself struggle with faith. He says, no, we don't struggle with faith. You either believe or you don't believe. What we struggle with is, how do I reconcile faith with the reality that I'm experiencing? According to the book, it's meant to be one way, but I experience the world in a different way. According to what I know and what I believe, God is all good, but look at the life that I'm living and the life that I'm experiencing or those around me have experienced. How do I reconcile these two realities? There's something interesting that we do when we, when we daven. We say Shema. What is Shema? Recognizing the oneness of God. The Gemara tells us that based on the Psukim, the verses, we are meant to read the Shema twice a day, once in the morning and once at night. Supporting it with a Pasuk, Lahagid To tell about your kindness in the morning and your faith at night. What does that mean? We all experience two aspects of life, sometimes at the same time, sometimes at different times the daytime of life, the goodness of life, and we're able to talk about God's greatness and God's kindness. But when we experience the darkness of night, we must still say the Shema and recognize God's oneness. When we experience the darkness of life, but we can only talk about our faith, not God's goodness. Why? Because it challenges us. It leaves us with the question of how do I reconcile my reality with my God? And that is why when we say Shema, what do we do? We cover our eyes. Sometimes in order to recognize the oneness of Hashem, we must cover our eyes because we cannot reconcile it with reality. As Eli Wiesel said, the question of God, the question of Auschwitz, is not meant to be answered. It's a question we are meant to carry till the end because there is no answer. You see, 50 years after Eli Wiesel wrote the play, he wrote a beautiful Rosh Hashanah message and in the message, he talks about how he doesn't regret a single, thing, a, single, a single word that he said in that play. But he would never say those words again. 
because he realized the entire time all he was searching for was his own faith and his God. Do you know how the court case against God in the concentration camps ended? As soon as they gave the verdict, they said, let's go daven Myriv. Now I ask you, which God were they davening to? Who were they praying to? But it was out of faith that they were questioning. It was out of faith and urgency that they were pushing, saying that you cannot have such a mean, evil, immoral world. And they were right, 100% right. And the Rebbe taught this to us. You see, the Rebbe, who championed the idea of challenging God with Ad Mosai, where we scream out to God, until when, how much longer do we have to suffer? And the Rebbe was attacked by many Jewish thinkers across the board. How can you demand and challenge God? Firstly, did these people never pick up a Tanakh? I mean, I get it, in yeshivas the Tanakh is not the most, uh, unfortunately, isn't uh, all that studied, but these are simple psukim. Verses in Tanakh, challenging God. Number two, secondly, it's not a question of pain. It's not, it's not a question of doubt. It's a call of pain. As we say, when it hurts, you scream out. When it hurts, when you see something that, that isn't meant to be, it doesn't align. It, how do I reconcile this reality? You scream out to God. God, how is it possible that this is happening? Not because I don't believe, but because I do believe. And the rabbi taught us that we must challenge God and push it back against God about the pain and suffering that we see. We don't justify pain and suffering. We challenge it. We challenge it by standing up and doing something about it. We challenge it by turning to God and saying, enough's enough. And when we do that, we start to build a better world, a more moral world, a world that God wants, a more godly world. And that's the purpose that we were put here. The Gemara tells us we are meant to be God's partners in creation, not passive creatures of creation. And the way that we do that, as the Bardichever put it, it's called holy heresy. And that is, when you see somebody in pain and suffering, we don't sit back and go, it's really, it's good for you. Or, God has his plans, God knows what he's doing. We do not do that. We do everything in our power to alleviate their pain and their suffering. And that is our, wor- our role here in this world. We've suffered enough, Ad Masai God, and we turn to God and say, enough's enough. It's time for Hashem to bring Mashiach and to end all pain and suffering.